This episode of TribCast is brought to you by Walmart, the largest private employer in the state with more than 165,000 Texas associates. Walmart understands that helping associates grow and succeed helps the company do the same. That's why the company recently announced a two-year, $2.7 billion investment in higher wages, skill training, and more flexible schedules for its associates. By providing associates with a clear path to earning higher pay and advancing their careers, Walmart is turning jobs into careers and inspiring its workforce to provide the best customer service. Texas Talking Ah, what was that that you said? Texas Talking Ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking Ah, tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys love Texas Talking Hey, this is Jonathan Martin with the New York Times, and I'm excited to come down to speak at UT this week and spend some time in Austin, and not just because... I want to get some Migos at Cisco's. And now, here's your host, Ross Ramsey. Thank you. This is Ross Ramsey here with the TribCast for the first week of April. I'm joined by the Texas Tribune's managing editor, Ian Mitra. Uh, you don't have a copyright on Howdy, right? I can say Howdy. I, no, you can't say Howdy. I do have a copyright <laughs> on Howdy. Uh, reporter Alexa Ura. A.K.A. winner of the Texas Tribune uh, March Madness pool. Oh, my God. And how much money was that worth? <laughs> we didn't put any money on See, it. that's lame. That's totally lame. And reporter Edgar Walters. Hey, there. Hey, how are you? So uh, we're taping this on the morning after uh, Ted Cruz's big comeback. And yeah. I guess he's trying to do the his version of Bill Clinton's comeback kid here. Uh, you want to talk about Wisconsin for a second? Yeah. So, yeah, he. You know, uh, the, the polls kind of came through on this one toward the end. Cruz ended up winning by about uh, – 13, 14 points in Wisconsin, and uh, you know he's he and his campaign are pitching it as a this is a turn in the campaign, and it's kind of it's easy to see how he can pitch that. I mean, there's this was a rough two weeks for uh, Donald Trump, uh, even though he's got a, a solid delegate lead. I mean, if you look at Wisconsin, I mean, some of the interesting most interesting things about this wasn't necessarily just the final results, but the exit polls that came out in Wisconsin. Fifty five percent of Republican primary voters are concerned or scared about a Trump uh, nomination. You know, a third of Republican primary voters are saying that they would, if, if Trump gets a nomination, they would look toward Hillary Clinton, a third party, or not vote at all. I mean, turning into the three Billy Goats gruff narrative. I mean, seriously, there's, you know, uh, even though Trump, you know, if you look ahead at the states that are coming up, you can see a clear advantage for Trump. But at the same time, this narrative is still working against him. And, you know, he's now he's not working just against Cruz. He's working against this building, you know, anti-Trump campaign. So it's not just about who he's running against on the ballot. It's it's just much more than that. So he's got two opponents now. Yeah. Uh, one of them's him. Uh, what was the turning point, though? I mean, there was so much well, support I mean, th- behind there seems him. To be, there seemed to be a couple of things that um, turned people off on him. Um, and, you know, the stories keep compounding. And Cruz has been, you know, they're not— 15 candidates for him to scream at. He can throw darts at Cruz and, you know, to the extent that it makes any sense at Kasich, but mostly he just has to stand there and weather the blows. I mean, something, part of this is that there's been two weeks since like the last big round of primaries. And so in that time, you had this whole thing with his campaign manager, uh, you know, and the Breitbart reporter where, you know, he did assault her, he didn't assault her, but, you know. Well, she, was <laughs> carry, she was carrying a pen. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, of course, right. Trump's comments on abortion and, mm-hmm. punish, you know, punishing uh, women for abortions. And so all these things were just kind of building up and there was no election to kind of like stem anything in between. So he's just kind of 
fighting against this narrative, and then he's you know he's just getting his own in his own way. Well, you know he he's had this image of you know to his benefit, and now I guess to his um, um, you know it's now working against him. This idea that he was winging it, and yeah. you know you can wing it to a point, and then when somebody asks you about foreign affairs or somebody asks you about um, you know. Um, women or anything else you've got this you've got this moment where it's like he's not just winging it he doesn't know what he's doing right he's he's also trying to turn serious which i always thought was going to be a problem point for him Mm -hmm. you know the moment when he started sounding like a candidate and he did the series of interviews or did a long interview with the washington post this week uh that came out with you know well here's how we're going to pay for the wall between Mm -hmm. the united states and mexico we're going to tax remittances and everybody went crazy about that and um, you know, a lot of this, you know, looks good on paper, but hadn't really been field tested out there, I guess, outside of Alabama. It's a Jeff Sessions idea. Yeah. He's the senator. He loaned a policy aid to Trump. They came up with this remittances idea, which was um, shocking news in places like Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and California. <laughs> right. right. It was a shocking, you know, the the story that came out this week was, you know, shocking to the payday loan business, too, which, you know, deals a lot with a lot of these loans that, you know, that he's talking about. Right. Yeah. It's a, a, the way you move a lot of this money aside. So, um, or move it across the border. Right. So New York is next, but it's two weeks away. So we're going to hang, kind of hang and twist for a little bit. Yeah. Here. I mean, supposedly on paper, you know, this is home field advantage for, for Trump. But I mean, again, you got two weeks before this thing. You've got this, uh, you know, building narrative against Trump. And you've also got, you know, credit to Cruz's campaign. He He knows how to work a ground operation. So, and he's, Committed to doing that in New York, so I'm channeling my inner Svitek here to try to <laughs> try to provide this analysis. But, you have to be, uh, you're not looking at your phone. No, no. Have I tweeted yet? Um, so have you but, written the story yet? <laughs> I know. I got, I'm short three stories this this uh, hour. Yeah, this hour. So, uh, so yeah. So there's, you know, even though the, you know the polls have shown Trump with a very sizable lead in New York, there's a lot more delegates at stake in New York, of course, in Wisconsin. But uh, Cruz is not uh, con- you know, ceding anything here. Well, and New York's a proportional state. Yeah. So, you know, it's not a mm-hmm. winner-take-all. And, you know, a lot of the delegates in New York and then in Pennsylvania and then in California, I mean, through through some of the really big states here, are by congressional districts. So right. unless you win a state outright and just, you know, sweep things, you may come away with the apparent victory but not necessarily the delegate victory. The, right. game, the game here is Trump's trying to get to the magic number before the convention. Mm-hmm. Cruz and now, you know, some – sort of um, gelatinous, foggy establishment <laughs> Borg out there trying to keep him from getting there. Um, I guess Kasich is useful to Cruz here, but also keeping Cruz from getting over the top. Um, right. I don't think Cruz can get to the number of delegates. I guess mathematically he can get to the number of delegates before the convention, but nobody's really talking about that as a possibility. Do, do, you, do you really see it as a strong possibility that anyone gets, that Trump or Cruz gets to the number? I just... I, I, you know, Trump can still get there. You can't, you know, you can't strike it out yet but yeah. he's got to he has to turn his fortunes yeah. i mean at this point is it more likely that we will have a contested convention than not i don't think so i think it's mm-hmm. you know we're on the bubble though yeah mm-hmm. uh, you know i mean that's you know the problem with this is that all of the pundits us included are fight promoters and so you right. sort of see this wouldn't it be cool <laughs> yeah. if we went into overtime in this game yeah. and you know we might go into overtime in this game if they stay on the current track it's safe to say that Cruz will prevent Trump from having the delegates he needs as they go into the convention. And then it's a convention fight. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, so and they're getting into all of these, you know, sort of um, micro politics. It's all granular from here. Right. So you get into this kind of thing where you say Texas is going to send, you know, this many delegates from the 108 delegates from the congressional districts to 
the national convention. Three of them initially will be committed to Marco Rubio. When you free all of those delegates, not only the Rubio delegates, but the Cruz delegates on the third ballot, if we come to that at a national convention, yeah. what's their personal proclivity? Because at that point, they're unbound. And then you're talking to, instead of talking to a Cruz voter or a Rubio voter or whatever, this happens in each of the states in some way or another, you're talking to a person who may personally favor someone other than who they were bound to. Mm-hmm. And that favors organizations. So if you started at the county conventions on March 19th, as Cruz, as Cruz did in yeah. Texas, and as he's apparently doing in other states, they're making sure that the human beings who become those delegates are Cruz human beings so that when they're unbound, they vote for Cruz. So he's trying to load this. The Trump campaign has come out and said, you know, well, we're, you know, we've hired some new people and we're organizing and stuff. That's great. I think they're late. Yeah. I mean, and you saw what happened in Colorado, too. I mean, the Cruz operation was on top of, you know, these on, of landing these delegates. And I think, you know, the Trump campaign has really, you know, they've really relied on the, at the name at the top rather than trying to really field a proper organization. You can see the difference between that and Cruz's operation. They are still involved in the states that have already voted, making sure that their delegates show up, that everything is on target. And you're seeing like a lot of people you know, who were working in past states kind of get dropped from the, from the Trump campaign. And, you know, Politico had this report about that and just kind of there's been some disarray. Their main data person in the Trump campaign is was let go or, or quit. And basically, you know, they don't even have access to all their data, apparently. Um, so it's, 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 it's a campaign that's, you know, very much uh, needing some direction. You know, Trump, Trump's going to have to turn the direction, and he has two weeks before New York. So last time he did this, or one time when he did this, was, do you remember the debate? It was on a Thursday night. Marco Rubio had a really great time. Everybody came out of the debate and said, wow, Marco Rubio, that's fantastic. The next morning's papers, Friday, were, wow, Marco Rubio, that's fantastic. At lunch, Trump announced Christie's endorsement and, and stopped the news. So it'll be interesting to see if he has something in his back pocket to stop the news right. with. By the way, we haven't mentioned that, you know, Bernie Sanders had a pretty. I was going to say the, the, the winner is yes. apparently going to face Bernie Sanders in November. <laughs> He's six for seven on the last, um, yeah. the last six, seven states. I mm-hmm. mean, Hillary Clinton wasn't even in really fight, you know, contesting Wisconsin. She, last night she, was, I think, was in New York at a fundraiser, and think, uh, you know, she kind of they just kind of wrote off Wisconsin and just trying to focus on the next round of states, which is interesting. I mean, I think the delegate lead is still strongly in Hillary Clinton's favor, but at the same time, it's the optics for her. It's this. She's in the She's in a battle here. So, well, I mean, there's, this the is not going The perception of her just yeah. getting there battled and wounded. It's even. a funny sort of study of momentum and how people look at, you know, math in real life. You know, you look at these two races and you kind of go, you know, everybody's talking about this Republican race. You ought to be watching this Democratic race. Maybe you're overcovering this one and undercovering that one. Maybe yeah. she's in as much trouble here as Donald Trump is. And, you know, um, Bernie Sanders has been a persistent thorn in her side. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's as presumptive as it was, you know, a few months ago. You know, you used to say, well, some of these, one of these guys is going to face Hillary Clinton. And now you say, one of these guys is probably going to face Hillary Clinton. Right. You know, it's starting to, starting to get some sand in it. Yeah. It's two uh, Alexa- weeks until New York values. Yeah, right. I guess New York and values And who can use up. the subway? Bill de Blasio's big day, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is going to be fun. Um, and, and, you know, on the Democratic side of that, we have a former United States senator from New York mm-hmm. and a current United States senator who is actually from New York, <laughs> serves in, in, from Vermont. But who apparently doesn't know how the subway works, if anybody yeah. saw that New York Daily News article. <laughs> get a token? <laughs> I'm not from New York, and I know how the subway works. It's for tourists. <laughs> Bernie's a native. It's for tourists. Okay. <laughs> I wonder if any of these candidates has ever actually been on the subway. <laughs> Doubt it. 
Uh, so, Alexa, you had a story over the weekend and have been following, gosh, for a long time, um, mm-hmm. the machinations of abortion policy and politics in the state. Um, what's going on? So we had this, um, we interviewed a couple who went through a pretty tragic ordeal in which um, the wife, who was not quite yet at the 20 weeks mark, um, began to prematurely dilate and her baby was emerging early, rushed to the hospital, did a series of emergency procedures. Um, The hospital said that they could not induce labor. Once they realized that none of those emergency procedures worked and they couldn't keep the baby inside, the hospital said, well, we can't induce labor because that would be considered an abortion, according to the husband. And so the couple was left to wait it out until, I'm quoting them here, nature to wait wait nature to take its course. So according to the husband, run, run that back a little bit. Um, the, hus- so the husband was told that that would be correct. The husband, when they were at the hospital, the the husband was told that they could not induce labor because it would be considered an abortion. Um, hospitals have different. They hospitals obviously have to abide by the state enacted restrictions on abortion, including twenty week marks, admitting privileges for hospitals when this happens in a clinic, twenty four hour waiting periods between the official consultation between a doctor and the actual abortion procedure. But then hospitals themselves all have their own policies when it comes to inducing labor in a medical emergency. And so, you know, the the bigger story here ended up being really that Doctors in the in the in Texas say that these abortion restrictions, not just HB two, which was passed in twenty thirteen, but sort of the ones that preceded that, and the bigger political climate in Texas is having a chilling effect on their patient physician relationship, to where some doctors might have moved forward with inducing labor because they could have said it was medically indicated in a case like this. Right? In a case like this, whereas another doctor might say, "Well, I might not do this, and I'm going to face resistance." by my hospital. Well, it's, it's early, I guess, to have much of a political reaction to this, but is the sense that you have from policymakers that this is an unintended consequence, or is this how they want the law to work? Do you have any sense of that? You know, I think when, when they were crafting the 20-week ban, which the hospital has said did not apply in this case. Describe the, the 20-week ban. The 20-week ban um, prevents abortions at or after the 20-week mark of fertilization of a pregnancy. There are a couple of exceptions for that, um, specifically when there's a fetal abnormality detected in the baby or when the mom um, is at risk of dying or facing any sort of substantial harm. And so there are a couple of, there there are those exceptions, but then hospitals have their own policies when it comes to abortions in general. And then there's also the 24-hour waiting period. So the hospital says, in this case, it was not the 20-week ban. We have our own policies. We also have all these other restrictions that we have to abide by, including the 24-hour waiting period. And But I really, I, you know, when you talk about unintended consequence, based off of the doctors that I've talked to, it seems like this sort of regardless of this individual case, which we still don't know a lot of the details of because of patient confidentiality agreements between hospitals and Which patients. is weird because the patient's talking to us, but the hospital's citing patient confidentiality and not talking to us. Yeah. Correct. They, it appears they haven't gotten permission Speaking to... Speaking of unintended to, consequences. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, the thing is, the thing with unintended consequences is that you would have to go back to the the authors of the bill, in this case, Republicans in the Capitol. And, you know, is this the sort of situation that you tried to cause with this bill? Did you, were you considering it when it was passed? And I think at this point, it's it's pretty unclear. But for for the doctors, I mean, this is a result of their ongoing 
sort of effort to restrict this procedure in a way that, you know, there there have been calls for what is considered a medical emergency under the law, what sort of, how much leeway does the doctor have to cite a medical emergency? When When the doctors look at this, they think, you know, we should be given more leeway when we're deciding what's a medical emergency and what's not because we're actual physicians. You know, we work with this. We know that you can't really write a law to cover every sort of situation that could happen. Right. And this is just one example of that. Do you see legislation yet? Again, it's early, but do you see anybody fiddling with legislation that would take care of a case like this? You know, I it, I think it'd be pretty difficult to write something into the law that could cover something like this just because there are so many things that could go wrong when someone is pregnant, so many different types of medical emergencies. Has has the hospital said one way or another whether they agree with the father's version of this story? The hospital has... I guess the mother and fathers. The the hospital has has not, on the record, has not... um, Touch the case and the touch the details of the case because they're bound by. So they haven't said he's wrong. They haven't said he's right. They've just said no comment. They they said that the twenty week ban was not the thing that kept them from performing the abortion. Okay. But they then went and said our hospital policy doesn't allow us to do this, and these are there are also other restrictions including the twenty four hour waiting period that would keep us from doing this. Is it a religiously affiliated hospital, St. David's? Is that, would they have particularly strict policies? You know, I, the thing about religious, it's funny that you bring that up because the, the OBGYNs that I've been talking to have brought that up as well, saying that oftentimes when you're at a religiously affiliated hospital, you might face a different resistance that you might not at, say, a surgical, at a high-risk surgery hospital where they might do more high-risk obstetrics and they might have gotten forward with the induction of labor and then tried to save the fetus. So it, it according to the OBGYNs, it, it very much does differ not only by hospital but by physician. And so when women are in a medical emergency like this, they could face all sorts of outcomes depending on where they end up, which is why I think it'd be difficult to amend the state restrictions on abortion to cover this because it just varies so much, especially in the state as big as Texas. Wow. Okay. So um, so no real indication yet on how this goes forward? Not yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, Edgar, you've been working on child protective services. Apparently we're um, sleeping in offices again and we're doing all kinds of stuff out there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's that's correct. Weird headline, right? <laughs> So I think the Department of Family and Protective Services is, um, yeah, they're just at this moment right now uh, facing a lot more scrutiny uh, than they have uh, in recent years. So we've got a couple of things going on. Um, one was this federal lawsuit that I feel like I've covered to death, uh, but we had a U.S. District Judge Janice Jack in Corpus Christi a couple months ago uh, saying that the whole foster care system is inhumane because it denies kids their civil rights, uh, a really strongly worded opinion, um, basically accusing the state of, of, of uh, messing up kids, uh, messing up their heads that they actually are worse leaving the system than they are when they entered. Was she talking systemically or was she talking about a particular set of things that, um, I mean, what brought her to that? It's a class action lawsuit representing all kids in something called permanent managing conservatorship, basically kids who have who are in the foster care system for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of one group of kids that I've been writing about. 
for the kids sleeping in offices phenomenon, there's this other thing going on where uh, the agency has faced a lot of scrutiny, primarily by the governor's office, um, over uh, a couple of really high-profile child deaths last year. Um, and those child deaths happen not in long-term foster care, but in um, these sort of short-term placements um, called parental child safety placements. So basically, um, you know, we're, say we're a family, <laughs> a non-traditional Texas family, you, you and I, Russ. Um, and, uh, but... The Tribunes, um, we call it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's some sort of issue where uh, it, CPS comes to the house and they need to do an investigation and they determine that um, the kid needs to be taken out of the home. Kid's not safe right now. Kid's not safe right now. Um, rather than the state actually becoming the the taking sort of full legal responsibility for the child and putting them in foster care and finding them a home uh, they could ask you and say hey ross do you have a brother sister friend who might be able to take in little johnny or susie for you know 30 days while uh we just make sure everything's okay here Mm -hmm. you know that way um, the kid can stay in school. It's not really a traumatic separation. Kind of stays in the family. Right. right. And so, um, and that's sort of done. So you would recommend that, uh, and then CPS would sort of sign off on it. You know, they'd go check out the home, say, this seems to be safe. We can keep the kid here. Mm-hmm. Well, last year, there were a couple of cases where children were dying in these placements. So the first was uh, the case of Justice Hole in North Texas, a really tragic story. It was just this two-month-old baby removed from the home. Um, and put into another home where there was a 14-year-old who drowned the baby and mm-hmm. she said, I don't, I don't want to have to take care of her. And, and Intentionally drown her. drowned the baby? Intentionally drowned the baby. Wow. And, yeah, she was convicted of murder. Um, and then um, uh, a few, just a few months later in Houston, there was the case of Codrick McCall, uh, I think four years old, a young, uh, another young kid, again, placed out of home, family, friend, or relative, Um, but is at this Houston home, finds a gun and shoots himself. And shortly after this, the you know, this is again, to rewind during governor's Abbott's really early days in office. And he says, he comes out with this really strongly worded letter to the agency and says, look, you guys child deaths unacceptable. We can't do this. Mm -hmm. So what I've been looking at is, um, sort of the, I guess, collateral effects um, of that scrutiny. So um, what ends up happening is, you know, the CPS, the way it's been described to me, the agency's problems are a little bit like a balloon, right? You sort of like try to clamp down on one one part of the balloon, you end up, ex- mm-hmm. you know, expanding in another part. So basically what's happened is as the agency kind of under pressure pressure from the governor's office has gone at, you know, really tried to improve safety in these parental child safety placements, these mm-hmm. out of home short term, um, say, you know, the way that they've, imp- you know, done that is say, said, hey, anything that we consider to be a risky placement, if there's any sort of criminal history, um, if there's been CPS involvement at this home, whether it was 20 years ago or not, those family members or friends can no longer take in a child. We're not going right? to make the we're not going to make the smallest mistake here. Right, exactly. Right. Which, if your if your goal is to cut back on child deaths, makes total sense, right? You you know get rid of all potential bad apples, go in with a broad brush. Right. The I guess unintended consequence of this, although I think the department has recognized that this was always a risk, um, is that by 
enacting big policy changes like that, you really restrict where you can actually place kids. And so the effect has been, yeah, we've seen the spike in kids sleeping in offices because they they don't have another placement available to them. We don't them. have beds available at the state level. We don't we have don't beds have be- available at the family level. So right. an office is better than what you would have got. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and I should say, you know, when a kid sleeps in a, in a CPS office, they're given a cot or an inflatable mattress. You know, it's not like saying, hey, go, go sleep under this cubicle. They, right. You know, sometimes I'll put them in a rainbow room. But, but it is the agency's sort of placement of last resort. You don't want kids sleeping in offices. Um, so uh, our most recent story was looking at sort of where the direction uh, for that policy change came from. And based off of a really, really in-depth, lengthy email correspondence between the governor's office and the Department of Family and Protective Services, you see that, um, yeah, there's Greg Abbott and his staff have just taken this issue to heart to the, to the point where they are giving a lot of direction to the agency saying this is what we would would like to see done. And the agency, you know, has cooperated, but is also struggling to, you know, that balloon got squeezed, right? And now they're trying to... Well, it sounds like they, you know, it sounds like the governor's office was reacting to a, you know, set of circumstances. Right. And this is, again, you talk to advocates, you talk to people who've dealt with the foster care system forever. This is what, this is what they say is typical. You have a crisis-oriented system mm-hmm. where you've got public outrage, a baby dies, people want answers. It's a horrific injustice. Nobody, nobody can stand that. Um, what you end up getting is sort of, again, crisis-oriented solutions that say, hey, we're going to prevent a crisis like this. You know, we're going to do everything we can to stop it, and then you have rip, ripple effects elsewhere. So, are, so are advocacy groups actually saying like this is an overreaction? There's this is there's some other course that we should be taking here, or are they kind of just really just not really sure about what what we should be doing? Because you be know, addressed? I think the response has been pretty ambivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, advocacy groups, primarily, you know, I talked to Texas Casa on the story. They recently gave Greg Abbott Casa and his wife for... uh, court-appointed special advocates. Okay. Um, these are the people who yeah work with and represent kids in foster care often. Um, you know, they awarded Greg Abbott um, recently as, as a child's protector or something. I forget exactly the title. They said, look, we're so grateful to you for bringing much-needed publicity to this issue. Um, we think you've done a, a great job. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they recognize that, you know, when you – when you do things like this and you have kids sleeping in offices, that's not a desirable outcome. Well, I guess the question is, like, what are they going to do with the attention? You know, that's right, always been, exactly. That's always been right. the thing. You know, a few years ago, there were a bunch of cases involving adult protective services and child protective services kind of at the same time. Um, big case out in El Paso. There were some other cases around the state. And, you know, the, the storm kind of passed, and here we are again. I guess the question going forward is – do you see any real policy shift here or any real change here? I mean, you know, in, in, what was your sense going through all that email? Um, two things. So one, I think part of, you know, advocacy groups recognize the reality of the situation and are not going to criticize the governor yet. They realize that he's probably, if this if this is a huge priority for the governor, that's probably the best that's the best advocate they could have, right, is right. to get real policy changes. On the other hand, I think the emails make it clear that there are some limitations um, to sort of what the governor politically is willing or able to do. I mean, there are instances looking through the emails where aides to Abbott 
we'll be working with staff at the Capitol saying we're crafting, you know, this much money into the budget. We want to set it aside for this. You know, uh, Abbott's aides turn to the agency. They say, hey, what, how much money do you need? What could you accomplish with, say, $10 million? And then the budget comes out and it's half or less than half of that. Right. You know, it's sort of the the chronic problem at at this department is they have all of the scrutiny in the world. Uh, they're dealing with, you know, what politicians refer to as, you know, our most precious, the most vulnerable sort of wards of the state. But then they also have very little uh, wiggle room or money to, to work with. Well, that's mm-hmm. my question. How does this fit into, maybe more so for Abbott, how does this fit into the bigger narrative around DFPS and CPS and, and funding for that? Because you know, obviously this has become a very important issue for him, or it might have always been, but it's, he's placing a priority and importance on this. But at the same time, he's also, the state is also appealing this federal ruling that found that the foster care system is inhumane. And so how do you even balance those both politically and in policy? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, it, you, you can see that there are sort of two deeply rooted and conflicting ideologies at work here with Greg in Greg Abbott's mind. I mean, if I'm free to speculate on what's going on. Right? Apparently, but, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, excuse me while I just armchair philosophize. Um, so so one, again, is, you know, child safety. I think child, preventing child deaths hugely important uh, to him. He's made it a big policy priority. On the other hand, states' rights and, um, you know, freedom from federal ruling and judicial overreach is a hugely important part of his, his Well, and it's government not necessarily philosophy. a contradiction. You can say, we, we want to sure. fix this, and I don't want you know some, some federal hand in here while I'm trying to fix this. I'd rather fix it myself. Right, and I think that's exactly what he's saying. You but know, did it, it get so bad that it required a federal hand to force well, people but to But on the other it. hand, you know, Abbott you know, would probably argue, I mean, you point out that he had just come into office, you know, hey, I mm-hmm. just got here. Right, right. And yeah, I like immediately I jumped on this, and you can look at this dumb. train of email and see yeah. that I did. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, basically, his position on the lawsuit, it's interesting. You know, you would think, hey, you've got this system that's been it's it's you know, you've got a judge saying, look, everything's wrong. Here's your opportunity to fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the statements from the governor have all sort of been we don't think that this is the role of the judiciary. We think this is the mm-hmm. responsibility of the state of Texas. And look, we think we're doing an OK job. And we don't need to be paying your special masters to tell us what to do. Are there special masters yet, or are there special masters there are. coming? There are. So Two have been appointed, and the state does have to pay them for um, the year in right. which they'll be studying the system and recommending reforms. And I will say— So they'll be the, studying going into the legislative session. Right. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, just the la- last point on this, the there is some overlap between the federal lawsuit and and the changes that, that Greg Abbott has been spearheading. But in fact, m- for the most part, they're a little bit distinct, again, because the lawsuit is dealing mostly with this long-term mm-hmm. foster care. Mm-hmm. A lot of their recommendations have been about, you know, hiring more caseworkers, et cetera. Um, I think advocacy groups are really hoping sort of for reforms even beyond that. They want more they want more capacity. They want more homes where these kids can go and they want more places, especially for high needs kids. You know, that's where they want the money. Right. Uh, we're out of time. If you have questions or comments, email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. You can also sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash tribcast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music on behalf of Alexa, Ian, Edgar, And our special substitute producer, John Jordan, this is Ross. Thanks for listening.
Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. I'm gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys love Texas talking. What's your base level for Lane? <laughs>